0: good morning oregon i'm finn jd john fj at offbeatoregon.com and this is the daily offbeat oregon history podcast it's thursday so this is an archive show first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on September 2nd of 2012 under the headline, Fort Rock's Legendary Rube Long Could Spin a Wild Tall Tale. Here we go. There was a time, and it was not too long ago, that the state of Oregon had something of a reputation as a place for great liars. Now, by great liars, I mean tellers of the good kind of lies, not the kind of lies that various politicians are throwing around right now. I'm talking about Paul Bunyan, Casey Jones, Pecos Bill, those kinds of lies. One such great liar of honored memory is a lively Eastern Oregon fellow named Rube Long. You may recognize Rube Long if you've ever lived on the dry side of the Cascades. He's the homesteader who deeded Fort Rock to the state of Oregon as a park. Fort Rock, of course, is where they found the world's oldest shoes, a pair of sage-bark sandals from 11,000 years ago. And oh yes, Rube could tell a story. Quote, I don't lie to people exactly, but it's fun to baffle them, he wrote in his book by way of explanation. In one case, Rube baffled a group of businessmen from the Bend Chamber of Commerce when they came to his ranch and were looking over his collection of antiquities. Native American artifacts, fossils, stone utensils, animal bones. The businessmen were especially interested in a skull from Rube's collection. It was a mountain sheep. One of the businessmen commented on how thick the bone was between the sheep's horns. Quote, I suppose that is to enable them to fight the way I've heard they did without injuring themselves, he said, according to Rube's recollection. Rube saw his opportunity. Yes, that is part of the reason he said smoothly, but those thick skulls are on the females too and they don't fight. The sheep grazed on mountainsides, too steep and rough for other animals. Often a mountain ledge would follow along for hundreds of feet and then pinch out. When they got into such a deal why they couldn't back up without stepping off the ledge, these thick skulls saved them. They'd calmly hurl themselves off the ledge, head down, and would land on the rocks below without harm. Clearly not quite buying it, one of the businessmen asked if Rube had ever actually witnessed this. Sure he had, Rube said. Sort of. Quote, I didn't get to see him land, he explained, because when he was halfway down he saw me and turned around and went right back up. Like most yarn spinners, Rube appreciated high-quality lies as well. He passed on one particularly entertaining one from Jack Horton of the United States Forest Service. It seems Jack was in charge of a guided forest service tour, and a physician from Philadelphia was in the group. The physician, a total greenhorn who'd never been out of an urban setting, was a problem almost immediately. He demanded a horse that bounced less, and then a saddle that wasn't so hard. He complained bitterly about the dust wanting to be moved up to the front of the line, and he griped about the cold lunch that was served at noon. That night, Jack found a nice grassy spot for the riders to unroll their sleeping bags. The doctor tried first one spot, then another, and then this one was too rocky and that one was too steep, and the third one was too close to a guy he didn't like. Finally, he disappeared with the sleeping bag he'd been issued, and the next morning, he appeared by the fire bleary-eyed as Jack was cooking pancakes. Good morning, doctor, said Jack. How did you sleep? Hardly at all, the physician grumbled. I guess it was that sleeping bag I almost smothered to death and my feet froze. Rube's most famous story is one that he presents in his book as true, and you can make of that claim what you will. It seems that he bought a ranch that had been a successful going concern, but it had been vacant for a while, and during that time the rats had moved in, and the place was utterly infested with them. Rube could not seem to get rid of them. Quote, I tried poisoning, shooting, trapping, all the things I knew about, he wrote. The rats outsmarted me on every turn. Then one day, when he was griping about his dilemma to a neighbor, the neighbor suggested what you might call a folk remedy. That is, if you were feeling charitable. If you weren't, you might call the neighbor's suggestion something else. He said that if Rube would just catch a full-grown rat, whitewash him, and turn him loose, the other rats would think he was a ghost and leave. Quote, That didn't seem to be the sort of thing a person could believe with all his heart, Rube added dryly. But the remedy was cheap, and I was desperate. So Rube caught one of the rats, a nice big one, and alerted the neighbor. They brought the rat out to the road for whitewashing, and soon a large group was assembled there. Well, large for Eastern Oregon. Rube and his two hired hands, and the neighbor in his two hired hands, and, quote, a couple other amateur rat specialists. Quote, "'At that point, several technical points arose,' Rube wrote. "'Such questions came up as whether the whitewash should go on with the grain of the hair, thereby getting a smooth, slick job, or whether against the grain, thereby being more thorough but leaving him rough and unattractive. Should we let the whitewash dry before turning him loose? Should we mix white of egg, flour paste, or anything else in the whitewash to make it sticky?' While they were all clustered around the rat and struggling with these scientific questions, a big fancy red car pulled up to the group. The driver stopped and stuck his head out the window trying to get a glimpse of what the fuss was about. Quote, "'What in hell is going on here?' he asked. "'I said carelessly, oh, we're just whitewashing a rat,' Rube wrote. "'He said incredulously, you're what?' "'I said as though it were an everyday occurrence and I was a little impatient with him. "'Just whitewashing a rat.' Stranger said nothing more, and when Rube looked up again, he was racing off into the distance, most likely just as fast as his fancy red car would go. Key sources in this story have included works by R.A. Long and Tom Nash. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplit Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Fakara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff.
1: Bye now.